0: This is Terry Edom, the author of The End of Fossil Fuel Insanity.
1: And our international oil and gas consultant, because he also works in the private sector for the natural gas company, correct? That's correct, yeah, just a little guy. And then he's also a blogger with Public Energy Number 1. He's a writer for the BOE Report and also an author with The End of Fossil Fuel Insanity, with uh, which is available at... Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble too, right? That's correct, yep, both places. Go buy them for Christmas. That's right, we'll make sure we link it up at the website as well. So, uh, first of all, let's get an international oil update. What's going on up in uh, the, is it Calgary, Alberta, Canada? You're up in that neck of the woods? That's where I am, yep.
0: Just not too far over the border from Montana. But uh, What's going on up here? Well, I think, oddly enough, we're... We've been all been preoccupied for two months, just watching your election to see what's going to happen down there. That's probably the biggest news that, as far for energy circles, anyways, is to see what that's all going to shake out like. And uh, I, I guess, like everyone else, we don't really know yet.
1: I'm glad you brought that up because I did want to ask you that if you guys do pay attention to the, uh, you know, to the U.S. elections, whether it's from. The energy side of things, or the entertainment side of things, but it sounds like it's actually from the energy side of things first and foremost, huh?
0: Oh well, you may you bring up a good point. Uh, it gave the entertainment side gave it a good run for the money this year, but uh, it was yeah, the energy side is pretty important. Well, we're kind of we have landlocked resources here, so we have a lot of. Uh, like the, Canada has some of the largest, we're among the I think like top three in the world for oil reserves. At huge natural gas reserves, and we can hardly get them to market. We can't get them to any sidewater um, hardly. There's one pipeline that, that takes oil to the west coast; none take it to the east coast. So we sell everything to the U.S. That's our that's our world. <laughs> so we have all of these reserves, and you're our big customer. And it kind of uh, it just uh, that's how it works. But from an energy perspective, whatever happens down there impacts what happens up
1: here. So. Well, how about for companies that do work down in the states? Because there's quite a few companies from Canada that's doing business down in the United States, aren't there?
0: Oh well, well, especially since things went so sideways here with the government we've had in for the past half decade. It was quite quite anti petroleum. They supported a little bit in some ways, but um, they're, they're they're climate change uh, fanatics, and so that's their their primary uh, worry. That they realize they can't kill off the oil sector, so they do uh, keep it alive. But um, uh, they're—they're—that's they're, that, their bent. So, um, yeah, the, the U.S. side is uh, uh, well; it's more relevant here, almost than, than anything else. And the uh, cross-border flow of people is—it's always—it's always happened that way. We've had a lot of the big majors like Chevron and Exxon and um, that—that big Canadian offices here and, and people went back and forth. There's a lot of transfers that would go to Houston and then to Calgary or to uh, California with Chevron or wherever. So it, it's always been a very, very uh, linked uh, system here. A lot of the equity for oil and gas comes from the U.S., from, the, from Texas or New York, um, so or are used to when equity would flow. But so, so the, the links are really, really strong.
1: The thing I was thinking about was you mentioned the transition was pretty quick over the course of a decade, of of uh, oil and gas kind of being phased out to or transition to, I don't know, a lifeline, a blip type of you know just a, a basic beating heart uh, up there. Because you mentioned they, they couldn't get rid of it, but they definitely took took it out a bit. You know, put put it to where it's a lot more controlled, a lot more regulated, and like. I don't know if a heartbeat or a blip is the right word, but are there any comparisons there between what the fear of a Biden administration or the green new deal and what Canada went through in the last 10 years? Is that, is that a comparison at all? Like a four times of things to come type of a scenario?
0: I I, I think it's a forewarning of what, I think we, we were ahead of um, where you're heading and, um, if, if, if people were paying attention in Canada, maybe they would have seen things like, well, for example, about uh, so 20, 2010 to 2013 or so, the oil sands were really taking off. There was like tens of billions of dollars of capital flowing in. New projects were coming on. They're big projects, 50,000, 70,000 barrel a day projects in the oil sands. And it was, uh, the things were just absolutely humming, probably too, humming too much. It was like the Permian boom. And... Uh, Now, just a sign of how things have changed, there's a company called Tech Resources which wanted to uh, uh, open up a new oil sands deposit, start mining a new deposit. It's close to the surface in some places so they can mine it. And um, they went through an approval process for a couple of years. They spent over a billion dollars, I think, um, and they uh, they dotted every I and they crossed every T and they got every environmental permit. And then it had to go to the federal government for review who now has a new regulatory regime where they can just decide um, arbitrarily up to politicians whether something's going to pass or not. And they didn't actually make that decision. The company walked away from it. They just said, this is just, this just isn't going to happen. We can't see it. So while they were waiting for the government to decide, they just pulled the pin and they just walked away. They, they ate all that cost just because it's become too challenging. And I think we saw, we saw that a bit in the U.S. there with that Atlantic Coast pipeline that got cancelled. The company had sunk i think again over a billion dollars into it and they had approvals the supreme court had said you have the right to go ahead um and they walked away from it anyways they just said this is not worth it so i think that just the the, the, the it, it's weird it's easy to say that the tide has turned against oil and gas but the tide has not turned against oil and gas everyone uses it every day everyone relies on it every day everyone understands it's this political movement which is we is the tide, but it, it, it is successfully blocking everything, here in North America anyways. And, and I think for, under Biden's administration, it's just going to be more of the same for, for the U.S. until the light bulbs start going on and people start realizing that global consumption is still, uh, it, as soon as this COVID thing is over, I think it's just going to bounce right back to where it was or even higher. China's right back consuming all that they ever did and still growing. India's just going to grow and and between China and India you have almost 3 billion people there which um and in North America Canada and the US we have 400 million so the, the, whatever happens there it's going to dictate the future of energy and maybe we won't be producing as much of it in North America here but they'll, they'll get it from somewhere so
1: that's what I was wondering how much of it's just going to be exported now um like you know, yeah. like like coal. That's pretty much what they've done with coal to try to supplement the market there is a lot of the coal companies have had to export it to China. So it's still getting burned up and used. It's just that there's a lot more robots in the field doing the mining and then a lot more exports happening to keep the cost down. Yeah,
0: and, and it just quietly slips onto a barge and leaves the country. The um, on our, our west coast here, British Columbia is the it's a very green progressive kind of province, very much like California, um, just like-minded people like that and um, very environmentally conscious, home to a lot of climate activists. British Columbia has a booming coal industry, and um, it's just very quiet. happens very quietly. They, they produce the coal. It goes on barges, and it disappears off into the world. Nobody talks about it, but it's, uh, yeah. Yeah at the same time they're banning they want to ban um fossil fuel car or internal combustion engines over there so they they haven't done that yet but you can see it coming because california did it so
1: well you can really see how how so much of this is you know nimby not in my backyard and um you know Uh just hiding the smokestack if if you will just you know a lot of it's smoke and mirrors you know but lipstick on a pig or whatever you want to call it and uh not in my backyard out of sight out of mind and just seems nobody cares then
0: you no know, as long as you look good that that's the um, as long as you're, you're um, uh, and a lot of the activists get mad about that they get quite angry they call it greenwashing where people just act like they're being green and they're not really being green and but that's what they're that's what even their instant the government institutions are guilty of like California get, getting rid of uh, hydrocarbons as fast as they can and no more new gas plants and San Francisco just had no new natural gas hookups and, but they just import their power from other states that use um, hydrocarbons so or, so what <laughs> but they feel good because they, they cleaned out their yard like you say um, and as long as somebody else builds the power plant they're, they're good so
1: wanted to ask you about the trees as well you brought up British Columbia got me thinking about the industrial forest where here at The Crude Life, we're doing some assistance with some ESG editorial and content. We're going to be interviewing companies and you know, kind of helping produce that content for the planting of trees, a network of sustainable forests across the United States, 1,000 trees per state, so 50 states, 1,000 trees, 50,000 trees, 10 million pounds of carbon uh, absorbed at a minimum and uh, I sent it to you as kind of a pre, you know, hey, take a look at your eyes and tell me what you think, anything, you know, we're missing, that type of thing. And you, you forwarded me a really interesting article that had to do with an initiative going on in Canada of trying to plant trees, but their, their hurdle is very different because it has to do with land. Talk to me about the hurdles that you guys are having in Canada, and then we'll talk about the the, the reason for the industrial forest in America, but talk to me about this tree planting issue you guys are having up in Canada.
0: Sure. Well, and first off, I'd say, like, hats off to you guys for that initiative. I think this is brilliant, and I think, um, like, I, I kind of get disgusted by the climate activists because of fear-mongering and because they say wind and solar is going to solve everything, but I do think we need a cleaner environment, and I need, we think we need to do whatever we can to reduce emissions and, and just make the world... The more sustainable that sustainable is a good word and i think forest is one of the best ways to do that and i think uh, because everybody wins when you plant forests there's it's a good ecosystem for wildlife it's good for the atmosphere it produces oxygen it cleans the air it's it's just it just win 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 all around um so your initiative is like that there's another one in canada called project forest i wrote a column about this on the boe report where i gave you a high five on, November 4th, it was out, if anybody wants to go read it, November 4th on the BOE report. It's called Exciting Developments in the Woods. Tree planting initiatives are just getting on with it, where I just said, like, uh, the organizations like yours and um, the Canadian one here are just saying, well, what, w- w- let's just make the best of this situation. If we're going green, then literally we'll go green, we'll go forest. In Canada, it seems kind of weird, but they're... Um, the guy I talked to, who's putting together the initiative up here, says that one of the challenges is actually finding land on which to plant trees. Which you would think is bizarre, because Canada's the second biggest country on earth, and it's covered in forest. But there are most of it is government-owned land. There's um, the land that's in private hands tends to be farmland, and um, the land that's been uh, like cleared by forestry companies, which is Quite sizable. There's a huge forestry industry up here, as you might expect. Um, That's their their responsibility to reforest that anyway. So it's not like um, if they go clear a bunch of land, then those companies are responsible for making sure that it gets back to some sort of a natural state. And some species of trees, uh, like poplar, uh, they grow back really quickly on their own. It's not an issue. And then some are more need more uh, help to get established again. Um, so there is some, a lot of science that goes into it, too. You can't just plant any kind of tree anywhere. But anyways, in Canada, the, the amount of land is kind of limited um, because it's it's that marginal um, slice of the pie that's not governmental, but it's not farmland. And uh, so it, anyways, the, the guy said that it's a bit more of a challenge than you would think to actually find space to plant trees. There, there, I, I don't understand it really, and maybe we need more legislation or something, but it seems like there's all sorts of right-of-ways or urban areas where there's just some big open space that isn't used for anything. Um, anyway, so we need to rethink it. But I think down there in the United States, I think there's a lot more privately held land. The government land is more the exception in the rule. That, that, I know that's a dumb statement, but there's a lot more land in private hands. There's a lot more that can be done down there. So, Well,
1: that's what it sounds like to me is that it's almost overregulated or over-controlled to where it's just it it's too hard to do. It's just it's just it's it it, for something as easy as just planting a tree for crying out loud.
0: Well it is and it's it's we get to the point of silliness here. It's like there's uh but I live in Calgary and I this is an odd little story, but I have two trees right alongside the street, um, in my yard. I don't have a big yard, just typical suburban yard. Um, but I've got like 30 trees in it because I love trees and I've got a bunch of spruce trees and, uh, three birch trees and other stuff. And anyways, two of the trees happened to be within two meters, which is about six feet of the street. And so those are technically city property and something was wrong with one of the trees, So tree, even though we planted them. So, um, so I talked to the city and they, and they said, yeah, we'll send somebody out to repair the tree, which they did, which was great. They sprayed it or something. And the, um, They said, if you want to know the city's uh, tree population, they have actually have a map of of where uh, of how many trees there are in the city. So I went to this website and it says there are like three million trees in the city. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. And you can look at a map and see where all the trees are. So I I dialed in on my neighborhood, and you can zoom right down to your yard. And I see their map says that there are two trees on my on my lot. And and but I can I can look out the window and see that that's dead wrong. There's like fifteen times that many trees. But if you ask the city, they'll say, no, there's only two trees on your lot because that's what our inventory says. <laughs> like, so they don't even, it's so controlled that they, they, they just go by their own records and say that this is this is what we think it is and that, that's the rule or that's the law. And, and it, it, even if it defies common sense, there's a much bigger story that came out five years ago. And I, I mentioned it in, in that column that I, I just wrote. There's a group of scientists in 2015 that... Um, There there had been a a common belief in the scientific world, I'm not sure how broad it was, but in the forestry world, the academic circles, that the world had about 400 billion trees. And um, a group of scientists decided to update that estimate because it was kind of old. And so they used modern technology and measurement techniques and aerial footage or whatever, and they decided that, no, that old estimate was wrong. There's actually three billion, or three trillion trees in the world. They're off by a factor of seven. So it it, it boggles my mind that in this day and age, they could be that wrong on something. And at the same time, um, um, telling us what we need to do to get the environment in shape in terms of number of, of trees. However, having said that, I still think that planting forests is the best way to make everybody happy in this debate, so...
1: I think it's funny that in the amount of time a lot of people are arguing about if they could plant trees or not, you could have planted probably half a dozen trees. <laughs>
0: exactly. Let get the work,
1: yeah. You know, it's just interesting it. how a lot of that works. Well, well what's going on in natural fun. gas up in your neck of the woods? Is it still going to, you know, be a foundation fuel, if you will? I mean, it was certainly, you know, long before Greta Thunberg came along, natural gas was really the next step for the clean hydrocarbon fuel. Uh, what's going on? Well, I,
0: I think that's still the case. And I think that, I, I mean, there's the anti-fossil fuel crowd is trying to kill natural gas. They're doing everything they can because they say it's just a fossil fuel, um, just like everything else. And even though it's much cleaner than coal or oil burning or uh, whatever, so so that, that movement is still underfoot. There, there's a great uh, story that came out last week, and I wrote about it. Um, about Enbridge, I'm not sure if you know Enbridge, but they're a pretty big pipeline companies. They're like, sure. they're worth well over 100 billion dollars. Yeah, they, and they took over Spectra in the U.S. a couple of years ago to get big into natural gas. Um, so they, they came out with their green sustainability report, and they're, they pledged to be uh, net zero carbon emissions by 2050 or whatever, which is kind of the leading edge um, target. Like some con- European countries are pledging to be carbon neutral by 2050, and Biden probably will too, Um, and and Enbridge said they're going to do the same by 2050. Excuse me. And in their presentation, it was really fascinating because they—they're pretty dominant in the natural gas supply world. They're—they're quite dominant in the oil transmission supply. Their uh, transmission—they own a lot of pipelines which connect, for example, the oil sands in Canada right to U.S. refineries. They um, they uh, deliver natural gas on major trunk lines right to businesses and consumers, and they also have a lot of wind and solar, and they're playing with hydrogen as well. They built their first um, wind farm almost 20 years ago, 18 years ago. So they've been at this for a long time, wind and solar, and they have offshore solar and onshore, or, or offshore wind and onshore wind. Excuse me. So these guys have their finger in every pie, and they said, and so they they, they just they invest wherever it's profitable. And um, so they're they're kind of agnostic about where they, their money goes, and so they're to me they're the best uh, or one of the best uh, uh, groups to listen to or organizations to listen to. When you, if you want to talk about a transition, you have to talk to somebody who's actually involved in in all aspects of it because they understand it. And they said that if you want, they said it's it's been called the bridge. One of their executives said in their conference call, natural gas has been called the bridge. If you will. And we agree, but it's an awfully long bridge. He said they, they, their contention is that natural gas is going to be dominant for many decades to come. Um, and and the, these are like they're they have a they have skin in every game here. so they're it's not like they're just saying this to discredit renewables because they have a renewables business. They're just saying, no, this is the way it is. So um, and and I think uh, next era energy is like a huge, uh, company down in the US, 140 billion dollar market cap or something. They made the news because I think they got bigger than Exxon. And they're they're a very green company too. Lots of wind, lots of solar. But if, you, if I just went through their corporate presentation yesterday, <clears throat> excuse me, and they've got they've got a huge reliance on natural gas as well. <clears throat> excuse me, that's just a, the the way it goes these days. <clears throat> I must be getting sick.
1: Well, let you grab a glass of water quick and. Just, just taking a look at uh, the time and everything, and I just wanted to ask you before we wrap up about uh, layoffs. Are you guys experiencing layoffs up in Canada, anywhere near like we are in the United States? I see Exxon last week, it was a 14,000 or something, I, I thought is what I read or heard. Um, talk to me about yeah. uh, the, the, the workforce up there.
0: It's exactly the same, and, and we are actually been ahead of that curve. We've been having layoffs for years here. Probably about four or five years ago, the uh, oil sector started shrinking, and there's there's been almost continuous layoffs. And, and when Exxon announces layoffs, they have a big uh, arm up here in Canada too, so that hits them. Um, Suncor is a big company up here. They've laid off a bunch of people. Uh, almost all of the bigger companies have been laying off people uh, pretty steadily. So, yeah, it's quite bad.
1: Well, how can people find your books and your blogs and your... Well, you know, get you, sure. some, get you some holiday money, man. Let's figure out how we can funnel oh, some money your way.
0: Just got to eat. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so my book is called The End of Fossil Fuel Insanity, and it's, uh, like you said at the start, it's available at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And, uh, yeah, pick up pick up a copy or two. It, people really seem to like it. It's, it's kind of written for the non-hardcore uh, oil and gas crowd. I wrote it for... I wrote it for people to give to people that are outside of the business to say, here, if you want to understand what's going on in this crazy uh, fossil fuel world, um, both both sides of the argument, try to understand wh- where we got, how we got to this place in the stalemate. Uh, that, that's who the book is aimed at. And, and people seem to like it because i tried to break it down into something that, that me- makes sense to people outside the business. So. And then I also write uh, columns yes, at the doereport.com, and my own website is uh, Public Energy Number One.